0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. I want to continue with what I started talking about last week in terms of this idea of the work of the Spirit. And if you were here last week, you know that I I sort of went off my notes a lot, and um, I'm actually experimenting with my notes that I bring up here to the pulpit. Normally, I write a transcript that has word for word almost everything that I'm going to say, and so for the last few messages, I've been actually just writing rough notes, Uh, and so uh, rather than writing word for word, and I think because of that, I I just kind of went crazy last week and just sort of went on to all these tangents and things like that. But I'm just, I'm just trying to play around with these different ways to preach. And so I kind of did that again today. So we'll see if we can get to communion before the end of the service, okay? Let's, we'll give it a try here. The other thing I, I want to say is I, I think a lot of you who sat under my teaching a lot are used to a fair number of illustrations and things like that. But for this particular series on Surrendered, I've just been feeling very convicted to stay very heavy on the text. And so I apologize if it's going to, for some of you, it's going to feel like drinking from a fire hydrant, but we're going to be looking at a lot of Bible verses today, okay? Not a lot of illustrations or stories, but a lot of Bible verses because I just feel like the teaching on the Holy Spirit is just so important that we look at what Scripture says because of so much confusion that arises when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Can we just pray for a minute now and turn our attention to his word? as we continue to explore the idea of the Holy Spirit's role in our life. Lord, we know you are here. We know you are present. And we know that you have a ministry for us. And so we ask that we would partner with that ministry by simply humbly opening up our heart to you and receiving what you want to give. May we receive this message with open hands, extend it to you, to come from that place of need because we need your spirit to breathe life into us, for we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, I've been making this argument in the first two messages in this series that there's been a lot of confusion in our churches today about this relationship between faith and works. The Bible makes it very clear that none of our works contribute to our salvation. Ephesians 2 8 9 says, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I want to affirm that unequivocally. By grace, we're saved. Not as a result of any works we've done, it is a gift of God but one of the points that I've also been establishing in this series is that based on that truth that salvation is a gift of God, I think many of us have wrongly concluded that God doesn't expect any works of us as Christians or maybe stated differently. Because salvation is by grace alone, we wrongly think that somebody can claim to be a follower of Jesus and yet have no visible change in their lives, no change in priorities, no change in their loves, no visible sense of victory over sin. In other words, no proof of any real change is needed. And I think part of that is this muddled way that we view faith which in essence amounts to a belief in a bunch of facts about what Jesus has done for me, okay? But as I have been mentioning all along, faith, as the Bible lays it out, is not about just head knowledge or an agreement to a set of facts. In other words, I don't express faith in Jesus by simply believing in my head about what he did. In the Bible, faith is also about pledging our loyalty or allegiance. And out of that, faithfully obeying his commands. 1 John 2 3 to 6, we looked at this already. And by this we know that we have come to know him. That's assurance of salvation. By this we know that we have come to know him, speaking of Jesus, if we keep his commandments. So John in his first letter makes it clear saying, if you claim that you know Jesus, then you will obey his commands. Now, obviously, this is not saying that we're perfected in that, that somehow we can perfectly obey Jesus. But I think there's a real danger that we emasculate these words to basically say, yeah, but at the end of the day, whoever is without sin, let him throw the first stone, and you know, yada, yada, yada. I mean, we're all sinners, and I don't know if the Bible is so cavalier about these sort of half-hearted stabs that we tend to take when it comes to holiness and the life that God intends for everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I think the truth is that if you are a Christian, We know that God desires holy living from us. But I think many of us struggle with what that exactly means, though. I mean, what teeth does that really have, you know? And I think there's a deeper question. There is, how much obedience is even really possible? Because we read, let's be honest here. Some of the commands in Scripture, if we're really honest, seem outrageous, don't they? Like turning the other cheek someone takes your coat give them your shirt also and loving your enemies and I mean does anybody actually really try to obey these things you know pastor john orberg shares about this church member that he had that he kind of uses the alias of hank and he talks about this guy hank that was in his church that basically was this grumpy old man that made life miserable for everyone that entered into his orbit. He knew all of his theology. He knew all of the right answers to every doctrinal question. But there was just something deeply wrong with this man. Complaining was his native language. And it seemed like his entire mission in life was to criticize others and tell them what was wrong with their lives. His marriage was loveless. And his grown-up children were like strangers to him and really didn't want any part of him. And commenting on this guy, Hank, who knows all the right Bible answers and yet is living utterly untransformed, Orpberg writes, Hank was not changing. But even more troubling than his lack of change was the fact that nobody was surprised by it. It was as if everyone simply expected that his soul would remain withered and sour year after year, decade after decade. No one seemed bothered by the condition. It was not an anomaly that caused head-scratching bewilderment. No church consultants were ever called in. No emergency meetings were held to probe the strange case of this person who followed the church's general guidelines for spiritual life and yet was non-transformed. The church staff did have some expectations. We expected that Hank would affirm certain religious beliefs. We expected that he would attend services, read the Bible, support the church financially, pray regularly, and avoid certain sins. But here's what we didn't expect. We didn't expect that he would progressively become the way Jesus would be if he were in Hank's place. We didn't assume that each year would find him a more compassionate, joyful, gracious, winsome person. We didn't anticipate that he was on the way to becoming a source of delight and courtesy who overflowed with rivers of living water. So we were not shocked when it didn't happen. We would have been surprised if it did. It's kind of a sad testimony, isn't it? to say that I think the truth is every church is filled with hanks, isn't it? And it's the sense like, yeah, but come on, you know. Um, and, and maybe there's this, this growing kind of fatalistic cynicism. How much do people really change? You know, maybe marriage does that to you. <laughs> you have such high hopes about what you guys would become, and then you just sort of learn how to cohabitate, you know and say, you know, she's never going to change. He's always going to be the same person. Maybe you look at yourself and you say, how much have I changed? How much real difference has Christ made in my life? I mean, my outward behaviors have changed. My activities have changed. And I like how Orpah really highlights that. You know, we, we, we locate the idea of change in these things like regular church attendance putting some money in the offering plate and occasionally reading your Bible or attempting to pray. But what about this real heart change of just becoming a more joyful person, a person that is not so controlled by your fears but really is selfless and loves others even before yourself? Do we really expect that kind of change in ourselves or others? I think it's very easy to be resigned to the sort of fatalistic outlook that says, yeah, I mean, I, I think Jesus changes us. I mean, it's so, it's so spiritual, it's so mysterious that nobody can see it, you know? This is happening so deep under all that anger and the frowning and the complaining and the hatred. There's, there's this change that's happening really, really deep down that not even my wife can see it, you know? <laughs> She needs to understand that, you know? Dallas Willard says it like this. Trying merely to keep the law is not wholly unlike trying to make an apple tree bear peaches by tying peaches to its branches. You know, it's it's kind of a metaphor for the way many of us try to live our Christian lives. Say, man, That's a hard teaching, Pastor. That's a really hard teaching. But I'll give it my best shot, you know? Take my best crack at it. But I think the starting point of real spirit led transformation is when you look at the teachings of Christ and say, frankly and honestly, impossible. Impossible. I cannot do that. I cannot be that person. My heart is not that large. I'm not that loving. I'm too selfish. And and that's like the first steps into the true Christian life is the recognition of how impossible it is by willpower or brute force. Obedience to the commands of Christ cannot be done by willpower alone. It is by God's grace you know, we often talk about God's grace as it's applied to justification. And when we talk about justification, what we're talking about is the act of God as judge. To take a person who is guilty because of their sin and to declare them as innocent or holy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is justification. Okay? The guilty made innocent. But That is not where God's grace ends because his grace in salvation is also displayed through sanctification, sanctification. In other words, not only declaring us holy, but making us actually holy like his son. That is also an act of grace. The way I expressed it last week is this. It's not as if grace is like the starter, you know, to the engine, And God gives us a little boost. And then the work of salvation in sanctification is up to us, saying, you know, I saved you, now you got to do the rest. The picture is that God's grace has to be infused even in our attempts to grow spiritually. And the work of sanctification, I'm going to argue today for the rest of this message, is largely the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it's sad. But I think many of us sort of miss the whole boat on that connection between the Holy Spirit's work in our life and that work of sanctification or being made holy. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. And belief in the truth. That is an integral part of our salvation, is sanctification through that work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience. To Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There are so many verses like this in the New Testament that talk about the sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, meaning without the Spirit, there is no spiritual growth. Despite all of your best efforts, without the filling of the Holy Spirit, there is no progress in the spiritual life. The connection there between this sanctifying work and obedience to the commands of Jesus is clear. A.W. Tozer says this. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and on. No one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. That's a pretty sad, but I think, unfortunately, pretty accurate commentary on the church today. If the Holy Spirit was not here, would anyone notice? Or have we crafted a man-made religion that enables us to follow the teachings of Jesus by our own power? and not recognize that without the sustaining ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life, I can do nothing. I cannot please God. I cannot live in obedience to the commands I am called to live by. You know, I think all of us acknowledge that there's this increasingly hostile atmosphere in America these days toward Christianity, right? And much of it is being blogged about and showing up on social media as this constant politicized culture war and religious war of Christians bunkering down because we feel attacked from every corner. And it's this feeling like whatever America may have represented at one season as a, quote, Christian nation, we've pretty much lost that. And it feels that way, doesn't it? Like we're being pushed to the margins, being excluded, being outcast. One of the most hated titles in America today is evangelical fundamentalist Christian, right? Just tell your coworkers that. I'm a Bible-believing evangelical Christian, you know? Put that on a T-shirt and see what kind of looks you get at work. But, you know, um, about a half century ago, Francis Schaeffer, this great theologian, was talking, addressing all of the attacks that the church was experiencing in his generation. And what he told the church is this, he says, you know, we're so worried about the attacks of the world against the church. But he said, that's not where the battle is going to be won or lost. But this is what Francis Schaeffer wisely said. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ individually or corporately tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Do you understand that? The war is not out there so much as it is in here and in here. That's where the battle will be won or lost. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3 says this. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun by the Spirit, Are you now trying to perfect your life in the flesh? If you were there at Refocus, uh, Dr. Ron Walburn talked about sort of in charismatic circles how sometimes when the spirit is working and uh, people feel like they want to almost give God a hand to let everyone know how much the spirit is working, that you might, you know, as people are being, quote, slain in the spirit and being passed out and stuff, and you do what he called a courtesy fall, you know? <laughs> Meaning, like, you don't really feel it, but you just fall down, you know? To give the Spirit a hand. And I think everyone kind of laughed at that, and it's very easy to poke fun from the charismatic side of that. But I wonder how many of us even do this courtesy fall when it comes to sanctification, you know? To try to do with human ability what only the Spirit can do. And so you mimic the work of the Spirit by sheer effort. And I'm telling you, that's of no benefit to you and that's no benefit to anybody else. So you give someone the shirt off your back and you go everywhere complaining about how cold it is (laughs) and how shirtless you are. You turn the other cheek, and for the whole next week, no one can stop hearing from you how much your cheek hurts. You hear what I'm getting at? This is attempting to live the Christian life by human effort, by the flesh. And when it doesn't come from a changed heart empowered by the Holy Spirit, it doesn't bring glory to God. It doesn't. Anyone can see it for what it is. Human effort. Everyone who is a Christian does have the Holy Spirit. That's affirmed. John chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is is spirit. So if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. He is a seal on your soul as a deposit guaranteeing your salvation. Every born-again believer has the Spirit. But we're also commanded to seek more of that Spirit in our lives even as believers in Jesus Christ. And the language that is used is terminology like walk by the Spirit. Or be filled with the Spirit. And I think all of these different expressions are basically saying the same thing. It's saying live your life under the power and control of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. By commanding that it implies that we're not always being filled with the Spirit, right? Right? That we can walk and live much of life, in fact, not filled by the Spirit of God. And so the command is, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to 24, one of the most extensive teachings on what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you see the picture that Paul is painting here of life in the spirit? He says there are these two sides of us that are waging war within us all the time. And that is that though I am saved, I still find the old clothing of the flesh pulling me toward the very things that God hates, but the sin that I have loved so much. And there is this work of the Spirit that is possible in my life. And as you can see by the way Paul describes it, it is, it is this inside-out change that happens in the believer's life of real love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. This is not stuff that can be generated by the will. This is a work that God must do in us. And I see that battle in me all the time. I see it in my marriage. I see it in the way I raise kids. And I'm sitting here trying so hard at times and seasons of my life to be the good person that I know I need to be in. I'm, I'm trying to be the better man, and I feel like Betty's at fault, and I feel like she has done wrong against me. But, you know, I just bite my tongue, you know? And I still cook her dinner, you know? and I still do the things that I want her to do, and underneath all of that godly behavior is a muttering. Like, does she even notice that I didn't talk back? You know? And it's just the stewing resentment that's building up. You know? and, and that's the flesh, right? That's the flesh. That's me trying to be the best man I can be, and honor God. And what a hero I am. What an angry, bitter hero I am. What a resentful, unrecognized, pitying hero I am. But then there is this work of the Spirit that can actually change me from the inside. And in midst of that self-pity and keeping a record sheet of wrongs and all that anger and resentment somehow the spirit does a work in my heart and all of that anger just dissipates into actual love for her and compassion toward her and to be able to see her as god sees her and suddenly my attitude changes dramatically We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives to live the life that God calls us to live. Without it, it is impossible. Let me actually give you two examples of the way that the Spirit does this work. We still got to do communion. <laughs> um, let me try to go quickly, okay? The first is that the Spirit reveals Jesus' worth and beauty. The Spirit reveals Jesus' worth and beauty. John 16, verse 13 to 14 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then it says this, Jesus says this about the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Philippians 3.3 3 says something similar for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh all true worship is driven by the work of the Holy Spirit and the believers life because here is the truth in my natural state I don't love Jesus I am not drawn to him. In fact, Martin Luther in his flesh, before he really came to understand grace, said, love God, I hate him. That's what Luther said as a monk. Love God, I hate him. Because all he saw God as is an angry taskmaster. And that's the honest truth is that even as a pastor, sometimes I struggle with that of just seeing Jesus like a cardboard cutout like Mickey Mouse or George Washington or some other mascot. He just feels so distant. He feels like a fictional character. How can I worship him? And yet there is also the work of the Holy Spirit that is at work in us, that sometimes in these moments of worship when the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus, there is a sense of his beauty, his worth, and it says, I would give Everything. There is not anything I wouldn't surrender for this Jesus. And that's the Holy Spirit calling out worship from the saints to say, you need to see the beauty of the one you worship and understand the infinite worth of the one that you're singing about. And you can't force that. You can fake it, but you can't force it. It's an invitation to say, Spirit, show me Christ. Show me this Jesus that is worth everything that He is asking me to do in His name. And that is a work of God. John chapter 14, verse 21 Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see what Jesus is saying? following my commands and obeying me must flow out of a heart of love. Where there is love, there is no law. That is a work that the Holy Spirit must do. I talked about that last week. That is not the battle of knowledge ultimately in which salvation is lost or won. It's not about having more knowledge. It is about what are the controlling passions in your life, the things that consume you, the things you love. And the Holy Spirit will do that in your heart to reorder your loves, to hate the sin that you once loved and to love the God you once hated. The Spirit also leads us to wisdom and truth. John chapter 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. This term spirit of truth is used over and over again in the Bible. The message is this, that we are constantly bombarded by lies. We're all living in a web of lies, and one of the works or the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our life is to untangle those lies and help us to see the truth of God in the midst of all of the blindness and all the falseness that surrounds us. This is something I have learned over my years of pastoral counseling is sometimes I I get so naive about it, thinking if I can just give you the right information, you're gonna have all the tools you need to follow God. But I have done enough pastoral counseling to realize there are real spiritual strongholds there of blindness that I realize unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, you will not see. There is a blindness there. There is a, there is a lie there that is holding a person in bondage. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is it illuminates the truth so that we can see the truth of God. Ephesians chapter one, verse 16 to 17, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Let, let, let me go, I'm gonna skip over some of the things I wanted to share and get to the next passage here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 16 says this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. We have the mind of Christ. That is saying something amazing and profound. Is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that we possess the mind of Christ to be able to see things from his perspective, to know his heart on matters. Now, this is not perfect. This doesn't mean that every thought of yours, because you're a Christian, is God's thoughts. I mean, in the very next chapter, Paul will talk about how messed up the Corinthians are. And how wrong some of their thinking is. But still, this is an invitation of the work of the Holy Spirit. That his thoughts can become our thoughts. And that we have access to the direct knowledge of God through the working of the Holy Spirit. And I've seen that at work in people's lives. Sometimes I've counseled people for months and I'm just banging my head into the wall. And then the next session I have with them, there's this amazing breakthrough and insight. And I realized this didn't come through counseling. This didn't come because that person sat down with a notepad and figured it out. But there was this revelatory work of the Holy Spirit in their life and suddenly they see what they didn't see before and they understand. I've had conversations with some of you here in this church who wanted to share with me some conviction that they had about God and some pretty deep theological matters because of your Bible reading. And sometimes I have honestly been amazed where I am hearing what you guys are saying and I'm thinking some of what you're sharing is actually like PhD level stuff in seminary class that theologians are arguing about. And in my head, I'm going, where did you come up with that, you know? Like, did you look at a commentary or something like that? And they say, no. I was just having quiet time. And I was just sensing that this is what God was saying. I was saying, Wow, you know, that's amazing. And I realized that's the Holy Spirit's work in that person's life, revealing mysteries of the kingdom of God to that person directly. This is the work that God wants to do in our life. Let's look at Luke 11. We need to wrap up here and get into communion. Luke 11, verse 9 through 13 says this. how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? There it is, the invitation. You see, it's not automatic, but we're asked and invited to seek that Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's go through a couple more and then we'll wrap up here. John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You know, presented like this, I think there's a sense in which anyone could say, yeah, amen to that. More Spirit, more Spirit. Who wouldn't want this if it really was streams of living water? But I think the truth is there's a lot of fear in a prayer like that, isn't there? A.W. Tozer says it like this. Before you can be filled with the spirit, you must desire to be filled. Are you sure that you want to be possessed by a spirit other than your own? I ask you, do you want him to be Lord of your life? That you want his benefits, I know. I take that for granted. But do you want to be possessed by him? I think that's a very honest and real question. Do you really want the Spirit? Because I think there is a certain comfort and familiarity in religion that we control and we keep God at arm's length and say, I'll tell you when enough is enough. And We only want a little of God, a little of His Spirit. I think there's a great fear of what that would represent to ask for all of that work in our life. But there is no middle road here. There is either life in the flesh that leads leads to sin and death or there is life in the spirit that leads to power and victory and holiness. Those are the only two choices we're given in scripture. Let's pray. We're gonna come to the table in just a minute here and receive grace through the communion table. But as we do that, Um, I want to give you a moment of reflection. And I I think, Peter, we're going to just skip the song, okay, and go right into the communion. Um, As we get ready for Easter, get ready to celebrate what God has done, um, I'm going to invite you to come to this table. And as I shared at the beginning of this message, um, I think there is a real struggle in our hearts to... Try to live the Christian life the best way that we know how. And I think few things are actually more miserable than to attempt to live the Christian life by human effort. And and I think if you do that long enough, you'll fall into that same camp as Martin Luther saying, love God, I hate him. Because he represents everything that I find miserable about life everything that makes me feel guilty and ashamed of myself and feel like a failure. And the answer at the same time, though, is not this weak Christian life that asks nothing of us. It's it's all grace, isn't it? So sure, I'm this horrible mess, and sure, I don't really feel like I'm ever changing, but it's all grace. I think there is victory for the believer, and it comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. But to receive that work of the Holy Spirit requires the faith of surrender to that same Spirit, to relinquish the control of our lives into His hands. I'm going to ask those who are going to serve communion to come forward at this time. On the night that Christ was betrayed, He gathered His disciples around a table in an upper room, and He shared a last Passover meal with them. He broke bread, And he gave it to the disciples and said, eat this, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he gave it to them and said, drink from this cup. For this wine in this cup represents the blood of the new covenant that I am gonna shed on the cross for you. What I hope our coming forward to receive this bread and this cup would represent this day is an acknowledgement. that I am weak, I am powerless. I have attempted to live the good Christian life by my own strength, and it's only resulted in more frustration, more anger, more resentment, more self-pity. And it is to say, I need that Spirit's work in my life of deep ministry to change me from the inside out. And so that's the invitation that I hope you're receiving this day. Spirit, come and do the transforming work in my heart so that I can serve you out of a place of joy and celebration of peace, patience, of kindness. All these things that I know are not true of me, by the power of the Spirit, make them true in my life.